Welcome to the Iron Self Podcast, where we jump into health, fitness, mindset, and becoming the best version of yourself. Today with your hosts, Mike and Kayla Minion. On today's episode, we welcome Sean Meyer from Trauma in Sherwood Park, Alberta, Sean has over 20 years experience in addictions and mental health services, specializing in occupational stress injury with uniformed personnel and first responders, including additional expertise in trauma-related disorders, concurrent disorders, forensics, and family therapy. He has worked with military, police, fire, and paramedic services in multiple countries and has held leadership positions with the National Health Service in the United Kingdom and Alberta Health Services here in Canada. He has designed and written national and provincial policy and has developed addictions, mental health, and trauma programming, which has been implemented in the United Kingdom, Belgium, and Canada. He is an active member of the academic, clinical, and charitable mental health community and has been sought as a guest speaker for various media and conference events. Please, with a warm welcome today, join me inviting Sean Meyer. Thank you today for coming on the show, Sean. Uh, nice. Thank you for having me. I'm actually really looking forward to this as I was just telling you. So I'm really excited. <laughs> for sure. All right. So let's get started. Let's jump right in. So today we are talking all things post-traumatic growth and how do we get our mind back in the game after essentially having maybe a setback. So this is one of those things that we, we wanted to jump into because whenever people hear the words start with post-traumatic, the first thing that everybody goes to is the post-traumatic stress disorder. So Sean is an expert in the, the other side of this, the, the you know making a positive out of this. So that's, yeah, this is what we're getting into. So maybe Sean, you can start off for our listeners and tell them what is post-traumatic growth? Yeah, very simply, post-traumatic growth is finding benefit in the sometimes difficult or horrible things that can happen to us. And um, like I often discuss with many of the uh, military or first responders that we have come through our place here, is that um, by going through this process, by going through the trauma, by going through all the things that they've gone through, trauma is not just, you know, I saw something bad happen to me. It's the effects of it. You know, the effects are the really the, the thing that, um, you know, has people land on our doorstep. And those effects can be their interpersonal, their intrapersonal, their, um, their family, you know, their the job, their the employer, their everything. So getting back to post-traumatic growth, what I tell them is, is that um, or I tell anybody that will listen to me is that post-traumatic growth comes from finding benefits. So you get a deeper insight into yourself and you get a deeper insight into life. So for example, all of a sudden you know what's important in life. Like I was talking to a, a relative of mine and he was in Vietnam and he was a prisoner of war for uh, a number of years, I think two years. He escaped and he made it out. And what he told me was, was that every day they came in, I won't get into the details, but basically he didn't know if he was gonna survive. And when he came out the other side, and this is something he told me my whole life, he said, the only thing important in life is life itself. As long as you're breathing, it's a good day because we can handle it. And that was some, that's post-traumatic growth, that deep, deep insight. By the way, he went and got a number of PhDs. He just wanted to learn everything, you know, came out of the military and, you know, that's what he did. So I spent a lot of time with him. That's where I really came to understand the concept of post-traumatic growth. 
that's really that silver lining. Like, can you find the good in the situation? How can we use this as a pivot point, that turning point to propel us forward versus it being a stuck point? Yeah, there's, there's so many people that become their circumstance, right? They get stuck in the mindset of, you know, whatever that negativity might be instead of looking at it as an opportunity for that growth and saying, you know, I, I made it through this. This was an incredibly difficult situation, but the reality is I made it through it and that's going to, you know, start to shape how, how they move forward. Yeah, well, what you're talking about is the work and the work is essential to post-traumatic growth. You can't just have horrible things happen to you and have no support, no... Uh, I call it work, but treatment, essentially, you have to do something to uh, get to the point of post-traumatic growth. The people that you're talking about, a lot of times, um, either haven't engaged supports, don't know how to, or uh, quite frankly, have never been offered, because that happens too. You know, it's very much part of our culture just to not say anything and grin and bear it and, you know, always put a smile on our face when sometimes we're really struggling. But to your point, Mike and Kayla, um, exactly, it is the work. And that's post-traumatic growth comes out of a lot of treatment uh, when, you know, trauma has been quite severe and prolonged uh, over a period of time. It doesn't just happen. You don't just wake up and go, hey, I learned something. It does not work. <laughs> Darn. Yeah, hey, let's, let's throw myself in the fire again. I can't wait to learn something. So, you know, it just doesn't work that way. Well, and I, I think something you just said there, you know, it, it's over the prolonged period. So, I mean, if you could speak a bit to that, you know, what happens to our body when, when we're under stress for a long time, when we're under that constant, that constant wave of stress? I'm, I'm sure you deal with that quite a bit. Yeah, that's actually something that there's been a lot of recent research on. So just to give credit to Dr. Nick Carlton and Dr. Rose, um, or oh, Rick Adelio, I can never pronounce her name, but they're both Canadian. And what they've done is they've been uh, researching the uh, prolonged uh, cumulative effects of uh, exposure um, to traumatic events. And, um, and again, just kind of capping on a lot of the research that's already been done. But to your question, uh, Mike, very specifically, a lot of things happen in our body. So keep it as simple as I can. There's a fight flight response that gets, we call it activated, but essentially what's happening is, is the body knows or believes that something bad is gonna happen and it needs energy to do that. It's gonna run, it's going to fight, you know, and then in some cases freeze, and they've added a fourth one called fawn, which is the uh, parasympathetic system. So sympathetic system, parasympathetic system, but essentially what happens is um, over time, is that there are changes to the body. So neural pathways, um, we create neural pathways to accommodate you know, what I call a harsh environment. So if you're uh, law enforcement and you're always going into any situation you're taught is potentially dangerous. So how do you go home and rest after that? Generally, you know, after years you can't. So the effects on the body are, it changes our neural pathways. That's the way that we interpret and see things. Um, that's a big one. It also changes our hormonal responses, which means that when we're sitting there, um, you know, I'll give you an example. A lot of uh, first responders can't watch certain television shows because they get activated. They've been there, seen that, done that. And the system gets ramped up, essentially. Um, call it like an anxiety. The best way I can explain it is, um, like I tell people, imagine if you're going to fight Mike Tyson and you're not a boxer. You've had no training. The lights are on. Everybody's cheering because they know he's going to beat you and you're about to get in the ring and you have no choice. You can't step out of it. Now imagine the anxiety you would feel and then think about it. That's how you feel when you're sitting at home watching TV after a shift. Yep. That's the best way I can explain. Now imagine what happens to the body after years of that. So 
very simply uh, heart, uh, cardiovascular, uh, digestive, um, nerves, uh, kind of like anxiety and anxiety-related or stress-related disorders. All of these things can come out of it. What they've shown um, over uh, a number of years is that, um, I'm trying to think of the data here, it's, um, oh, what is it, 44.5%, uh, this is from Nick and, and some of the work that he did, 44.5% of first responders meet some of the criterion for a mental health disorder. That's one in two, a little bit less than one in two. That's amazing. So what does that mean when they go home? It means that they have generally higher incidences of chronic pain. That's kind of the, the nerves and organs and other things that are going on. They have uh, poorer relationships because their tolerance for relationships is very, very low. You know, um, they have, um, actually I was gonna say there's, there's a lot of research that has higher addiction rates, but we don't see a lot of that so much anymore coming through, uh, through Occutrauma, you know, where we work some but minor it's not even worth mentioning at this point uh, at least for the people we have i just want to be clear about that but there's all those things that happen so what happens to the body bottom line is it changes over time to adapt to a harsh environment and you have physiological and psychological effects which um obviously a bit of a closed loop system but one affects the other and um, they continue that process did that answer your question yeah. mike yeah. i think i rambled for a bit as you no, know. that's great. I mean, I, I think that uh, the episode that we recorded just before this, we talk about stress and the stress response. So this is yeah. so great that you're just like reiterating all of the things that we have said. And it, it you know, it just brings so much more clarity for, uh, for the listeners because they can really understand that like, <clears throat> We, we're, we're sharing the information, but it's coming from now from you, and you are really the, the true expert, and you're working with us on a regular basis, and I think this is so imperative, is like, when, when we look at like the effects of stress over time, and it, it can be like, like you said, very harsh stress, but it can even just be chronic stress, and you're seeing a very similar approach um, in the response from the body, um, and in the changes that take place in the body. And I think that that is so critical because we think of stress of, most people will talk about it in their mind, but not like what it actually, the physical effects to the body are. And I think that right now we're living in a society where people are often getting sick and they can't figure out, well, why am I getting so sick all the time? And it's like, Take a look at your, yeah. your situation. They're stuck in a sympathetic nervous system, so they're 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 in that state of arousal constantly. Yeah. And this this comes from social media. This comes from you yep. know just just workplace in general, whether it be first responders or just you know an office job. There there's that heightened level of stress that everybody is under. And and we were talking about this the other day about the the difference between you know the year 2000, let's call it it now, is everybody's connected now. We all have these social medias where everybody gets to see your life. So it's not just your immediate family and friends that, you know, might be the ones that are saying, oh, that's great, or, you know, you're not doing so great, whichever way it might be going. It's the entirety of society. Anybody that has a connection to you, it is your friend on Facebook or Instagram follows you, they all see everything. So, so everybody feels this societal pressure now, which increases that sympathetic tone. Uh, 200%, you're absolutely right. And, and if you want to look at the effects of stress on the body and, and on the, the mind, essentially, um, look at military and first responders. It's kind of like dump, dunking them into a pool of stress and seeing what, like really short and really fast and seeing what happens. Because the average person, um, non-first responder, non-military, they have those stresses as well and they suffer mm -hmm. the same or can suffer the same physiological um, consequences. You know, cancer is a big one. 
you know, there's links between stress and cancer and heart disease and you know, all the things that I was mentioning and, and a million other things, digestive and, oh man, it just goes on. So to your point, um, you know, to what both of you are saying, I'm just agreeing that, um, you know, stress does have a horrible effect on our body. It's meant to be short term. So if we didn't have a concept of self, so we call it uh, like the ego, that by the way, this is old psychoanalytic stuff, but regardless, everybody's heard of the word the ego. So that's a sense of self. Now, animals don't have that, but they have the same um, sympathetic response. So if you ever get mad at your dog, which I have, by the way, and I'm sorry, his name's Colin. I call him Colin because I keep calling and calling. He doesn't come back. So um, I get mad at him and he'll go hide in the corner. I actually don't get mad at him, but just as an example. And then I go, come here, buddy. And two seconds later, he's fine because he doesn't have that same concept of self. We do. We have that memory. We carry it. You know, so that's the thing that we have to learn is that sometimes our thoughts and our feelings aren't truthful. They lie to us. And that's what I try to teach people as well. Because when you're in that activated response, like I was saying, that closed loop system, what happens is you will see and perceive everything as a threat. So going back to social media, um, what I tell people is just don't watch the news. I mean, if you're if you've gotten to the point where like you've been in the news, you know, uh, just don't watch it. Um, what tends to happen, you know, um, going back to what I was just saying there about what you were talking about, Mike, is what tends to happen is that, you know, people get activated and they stay activated. And then there's a consequence to their body. And everything we see and perceive then becomes a potential threat. So going back to social media, the thing I hate about social media is not that not that people are even in contact, is that, I don't know, by the way, I don't do social media, I refuse. I work forensics, so never put your face on Facebook if you work forensics. Um, <laughs> because that's just a good way to find out lots of information about you. But uh, that being said, that being said, um, what I hate is, is it called trolls? The people that just go and stir up trouble, you know, they kind of get off on it. Um, they're the ones that create the critique and the criticism. There's always somebody that's gonna have something to say, which then of course makes us think that maybe there's something wrong with us. And that's just a stress we don't need. Well, and it's a natural natural thought process is everybody's their own biggest critic, whether you are the smartest that man in the true. world yeah. or the strongest man in the world. It doesn't matter. Everyone's their own biggest critic. So as soon as you see somebody else say it, it adds that validation. You're like, holy man, I've been thinking that already. <laughs> uh, go, there, is, there is a side of us that is heavily critical of ourselves and others, and we have to keep that in check. And when we're under stress, that side can sometimes take over. Right. So that side of us is so important, though, too, I think, because like that inner critic is there to keep you alive. Right. It's there to keep that mm -hmm. basic survival instinct there. And most of us see this inner critic as a bad thing. But I think that we just need to recognize that it's there for our, our basic human survival and that we can now use it to our benefit if we're seeing it from that light. It's like, OK you know, do, do I need to do this because my, my self is telling me that I'm no good at this or whatever. Like we, what we always do with our yeah. clients is we always talk about being mindful of that inner critic, right? The inner critic is there for a good reason. They're there in that survival state. It, you know, without that, there's no, there's no critical thinking, but it's still usable in the sense that, you know, you can be mindful of what that inner critic is saying and you can acknowledge it, or you can just kind of let it go past, just kind of view it. Right. <clears throat> it is, um, man, you guys are touching on all the things that I, I love. So what, uh, in my language, there's a positive and negative ego. The negative ego is the kind of thing that uh, dark and negative side of our personalities, but you're exactly right. 
is that it's actually designed to protect us. It wants to protect us from the pain of looking at ourselves and it wants to protect us from any pain in our environment. So somebody criticizes us, our first response is, you know, screw you or something. Can I say that? I don't know. I just yeah, go for it. <laughs> so, um, you know, they'll say screw you, but in reality, it may be we don't want to look at something in ourselves and that criticism because it's there, or we can't accept that, you know, this person we care about or whatever said this. So to your point, yes, we have to be very mindful of it. We have to be very aware of it. And then we have to ask ourselves, is it trying to protect us from something that we need to look at? Meaning it's going to tell us it's not our fault. Or is it trying to tell us, hey, I got to watch out for what's happening here? Because that's the thing. If you don't understand what it's doing and it will not tell you, it can have a dual function, which can be protective, but also destructive. And I think that's where the key of self-awareness comes into this. Like so many people, uh, and I mean, myself included, I've been there for sure, where we're walking around not fully aware of the actions that we're taking, of what's going on in our body, the messaging that we're telling ourselves. And you can't really bring awareness to that inner critic and be able to make that decision is like, is this self-preservation or is this just like me being an ass to myself <laughs> for lack of a better way of saying it. But if you don't have that self-awareness, you, you really can't make that critical decision. That's again, 100% true. And where do you get the self-awareness from? And I will always say this, it's work in practice. We have known since the beginning of time, the work that we need to do. Um, and I literally mean since the beginning of time, you know, we know that the body reacts a certain way. So there's been all these rituals and practices developed, which help us to regulate the body in a sense, which then frees up the executive function in our thinking so we can make good choices. So to your point, to exactly what you were saying there, Kayla, is, um, it's the work, like how do you create that self-awareness? And you're not born with it. You know, unfortunately, we don't just wake up and go, I'm fully aware and I know everything I need to do and I know exactly where my life is gonna go. What we have to do is we have to look at all of the kind of like fears and biases and things that we've developed, you know, that self-protective thing, kind of move it aside and go, if I was truly myself, you know, what would I do? And then that's where we find our bliss, say, you know, the, the thing that we're meant to do which is what I think you two are doing, by the way. I think this is awesome. So all the work that you do. I really mean that. I'm not just saying that because we're talking. I'm saying, well, I probably told you that before. But anyways, it's, it's the work that you do, right? And it's how you do it and then the focus that you have. And generally, the simple rule that I have for people that are just starting to understand this is one, is absolute honesty with self. You know, if you want to lie to somebody else, it's not helpful, but go ahead. But don't lie to yourself. And you have to learn how to be honest with yourself. The second thing is, is do well for others. Now, if you do well for others, it always, to the best of our ability, it will keep that dark and negative side of our personality in check just a little bit, because you have to fight it. It's like I'm doing something for somebody else versus myself. And that dark and negative side is always protective, but selfish, right? If there's one cookie left, I know I want it. And I know I deserve it. And I know Mike and Kayla don't deserve it because they took the other two, right? That's the selfish side. Then I put that in check and I go, you know what? How about we split the cookie? Mike and Kayla, you each have half. I walk away and think, damn, I wanted that cookie, but I feel better. What I tell people, um, if they want to do the work to begin looking at themselves, because it is a lot of work. Um, in order to do that, one is like absolute honesty with self. You know, you got to figure out how to be honest with yourself in all things. So what I tell people is it's pretty hard to lie to me because I know every lie I've ever told myself and everybody else. You gotta be honest like that. Every lie, you know, little or big. Um, so I'm pretty good at kind of spotting that stuff. So going back to the cookie, what I was also saying was part two to that is in order to manage that, you want to uh, 
be selfless. You want to give to others. That keeps the dark and negative side of our personality kind of in check a bit. So if there's one cookie left and there's three of us, I'm going to split it in half and give each of you half, no matter how much I wanted that damn cookie. Because if I do that, I know that my life generally goes better. If I keep it for myself, I'm always fearful, always afraid that I'll never have enough. And I'm always afraid you're going to take from me. And that creates a huge, huge barrier in our lives if we are selfish and think that way. Well, one thing that you were just alluding to before that, you're talking about the differences between, you know, somebody internally doing things and externally doing things. And that's something important that I thought we should talk about a little bit too, is just the different styles that people deal with their stress, right? Because there's some people that kind of internalize, they close everything down and there's other people that, you know, kind of lash out. So what what do you what do you see as kind of some of the key factors to to be able to tell you know how somebody deals with their stress so um yeah i have a whole bunch of rules for everything when somebody walks through my door so one of the first things i look at is do they externalize their stress or do they internalize it mm-hmm. so the ones that externalize it are the ones that generally and, and we know the types they will go around and bang everybody over the head they're yelling they're screaming they're cutting you off and then telling you it's your fault on the highway Um, They'll do things like that. doesn't mean they're a bad person. It's just that's how they're dealing with things. It's a complete externalization of everything they're feeling, you know, a projection of their anger onto everybody else. And like I said, that does not mean they're a bad person. It just that's how they deal with things. Then you got the other side. The polar opposite of that would be um, those that internalize it. They're the ones that are going to sit at home with the blinds closed. You know, again, talking about first responders and and military as, as examples. Um, they're going to sit at home and essentially isolate. They want little or nothing to do with anybody because the stress of that, it's just they're already stressed. So it's just like too much stress in your cup, it's going to overflow. So going grocery shopping is a big thing for, for uh, a lot of people. Um, the ability, like if your phone rings, a lot will switch their phone off. Um, a lot will not be able to sleep until 5 o'clock because 5 o'clock, you know, generally nobody's coming to your door and the phone's not going to ring. So they'll start sleeping at five, right? Because they know that nobody's coming. Like it's it's the, uh, oh no, so I got that backward. They'll sleep all day until five. That's what I meant to say. So I got that backward. They'll sleep all day because to avoid any uh, like phone, doorbell, you name it, it's a huge stress. They get up at five and then they're up all night because it's just, they know there's nobody around. So that's, that's one way of kind of looking at uh, a stress, um, long-term kind of stress and what it does to a person. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if I've ever told you this, like my, my dad was actually a police officer 36 years on the force, and he still, we, we called his perpetual night shift because he, he dealt with a lot of things, but he never fully dealt with a lot of things. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's been retired now for over 10 years, and he's still what we call on night shift because exactly that. He, he waits until, you know, halfway through the day before he even gets up, so then he's up all night where he yeah. knows nobody's going to be, connecting with him in the middle of the night you know and then then he goes to bed early in the morning and he sleeps through the day yeah that's that's the thing the stuff i'm saying is not you know not i'm not saying it because i read it somewhere or um you know i'm you know it's just i've developed these ideas they're really just observations from talking to really good men like your father you know and talking to lots of people and watching what they go through and understanding you know, the sort of the academic theoretical side, but what does that mean in a person's life? We're talking about the effects of stress, right? Like what does long-term stress do? And for me, it's very practical. If it messes up your life, we gotta do something about it. The good news is we know what to do. What I always tell everybody is we know the work. What we don't know is the time, right? The time 
take a long time for people or it can be shorter for people depending on a lot of you know variables and factors but the work we know and what I tell everyone is if you do the work you do the work you practice it you do all the things that you know the good people in your life are asking you to do um, there will be imp significant improvement you know again there's a whole bunch of things that I can never we never promise that someone's gonna get better because we can't but um, you know generally speaking there is improvement now, I, I just wanted to ask this too, just just came to my mind. Now, with the internalizer versus the externalizer sort of thing, do you find that it's like a big thing that I go off of is that everything, we're cumulative of our learned experiences over life. So do you find that like, whether they're internalizing or externalizing, is that something that starts early on? Is that something that, you know, is a learned behavior from, you know, my parents or your parents, you know what I mean? Is that something oh, yeah. that, that is a learned behavior? Yeah, I think it's a couple of, I think it's a few things. So we look at a few different areas. So we look at um, your personality. You know, we have certain inherent traits. We're just kind of born with them. We get, uh, what I tell everybody is you get the best of both parents. Regardless of how your parents may have used the traits they had, you get the best from them. And um, then from that, you know, our personality develops and our personality develops generally in the kind of formative years of our life. But that has a lot to do with our family. It has a lot to do with like how our family copes with things, how our family views things. And then as we take those on, we either accept some and reject others. But essentially uh, what happens after that is then it's kind of like the life that we have. What people do we bring into our own lives? So there's the biological kind of genetic, um, there's the psychological, and then of course there's you know the emotional, which when we do have an emotional response, kind of part of our biological, but uh, the way in which we interpret that and the way we interact in the world. So to answer your question, yes. I could have just said yes. Right. I, lo I love the long explanations. They, they work best for me. <laughs> That's probably why we keep talking to each other, because you'll listen to me and smile and nod like, you know, very, very uh, supportive. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I always think back, like, I used to think I was so extroverted while I was growing up and that, like, everything for me was external. But as I get older, I realize that I have a lot of those similarities from my parents in the sense of, like, I actually prefer not to be around people as often and I prefer to be alone and I am that internalizer. So it's just funny because who I perceived myself as for so many years is actually fundamentally not who I am. Which is often the case. Very outgoing people are often, um, you know, they're often, uh, as we say, uh, introverts. So here's how I tell people, if you really want to know the difference, if you, or if you want to know which one you are, it's... Do you get energized when you go out? Do you need to go out to get energy when you're talking, like by talking to people, have uh, spending time with people? Or do you need, do you regain energy, like recharge your batteries home by yourself alone? Because that will tell you which one you are. So you can spend lots of energy, Kayla, which you do. But to recharge your batteries, you probably need some Kayla time and some quiet time. That would totally. be an introvert. To the hot tub. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly right. That, by the way, I am totally an introvert. I, it takes lots of energy. I get tired at the end of the day talking to lots of people. I go home and recharge my batteries. Um, if you talk to my wife, you'll find out that I don't talk much, which is hard to believe from anybody else that knows me, but I don't have much to say. I'm usually pretty quiet. And when we go out on the weekends, I just kind of wander around, follow her and the kids around and help out where I can and don't really have much to say, uh, mostly because I'm an introvert. That's why I'm reflecting and just taking time to to look after myself. 
And that, I think that that's so important to know if you're the introvert or the extrovert, if you're in an internalizer or an externalizer, because this really helps you understand, you know, how do I need to cope with my stress? How do I need to work through these um, and build my habits around? Like, what? how do I create that environment for myself that is going to be uplifting and empowering and motivating? Um, and you kind of, you can kind of see the path that you start to need to travel. That, that's exactly why we look at it that way. Like if we, we do have some, um, you know, alphas walk through the door and everything's going to be their way and we have to talk to them about, well, how does that work in your relationships? That might be great, you know, when you're deployed. That might be great when you're, you know, um, in charge of something. But how does that work in your relationships? Uh, alternatively, on the other side, if somebody is very, very avoidant, you know, they're very, in, they've internalized absolutely everything. We have to teach them how to or support them uh, to be able to set boundaries and set things up and, you know, take a little bit of, of um, command in, in their life. So you're right. The starting point is where are you at? And then what do we have to do? Because both in their extremes, as they say, everything in moderation, both in their extremes is destructive. Like it really does destroy people's lives, you know, and both are good. I'll, actually, I, I want to give you a can I give you an example? Really good one. Of course, so, um, working with first responders, especially we look at moral injury and sanctuary harm, moral injury is, um, basically you keep seeing things that are morally wrong and, you know, and it bugs you, it really affects you. Sanctuary harm is where your partner or your employer will throw you under the bus, right? Or you see that they really don't seem to care about the people that you're trying to serve. So when it comes to that externalizer, internalizer, and those effects of PTSD, um, in explaining moral injury. I think this sums up everything really quite well, is um, you'll have a, we'll say a first responder, say law enforcement uh, sees a white shirt or supervisor or something like that, and they threw them under the bus or didn't, or seemed incompetent, whatever. They'll get incredibly mad at them. So mad that, um, and by the way, internalizers and externalizers will get mad at them. Uh, just how they deal with it is a little bit different. So they'll get so mad at them, they'll say, I hate you, I hate the force, and I hate the city, you know, or the government. And that gets extended. So that hyperactive uh, arousal, the, uh, the activation of the sympathetic system, and it's, and it's always activated, then becomes, everything becomes a threat. Now, moral injury is the strongest when you know you're justified. That's the trick to moral injury. So you know what they did was wrong. You saw that they did something that was wrong. Nobody can tell you that that didn't happen. So all of that then gets placed into that situation and you are justified, you are 100% right. And that can be so devastating for people because they can't let it go. And that's moral injury, you know? So um, that's how that works. So if you look at how that arousal, that system over time, you know, occurs, then that's the effect that it can have. And eventually your outlook is, you know, like I said, kind of everything's a threat. By the way, supervisors and employers do screw up there's no two ways about that it's just what does it do to you? as being someone who is in those roles i i'll be the first to admit i screwed up too right well like it, we're, we all nobody do. is perfect you take the best you do the best you can on every day but the, nobody can be perfect yeah well the difference is you went and talked to them mike some don't have that ability some go hey you know i'm not going to tell you what i did i'm not going to talk to you i'm not going to sit down with you and then of course that just throws gasoline onto the fire yeah so somebody that maybe might be in a position where they're thinking, you know what, I need some help to deal with my stress or my trauma or my PTSD, but they don't feel 
comfortable coming to someone for help because that I mean really when you go to someone for help you're you're becoming vulnerable and you're saying I need help I can't deal with this on my own what would be your tools or techniques or tips for the, this person to say you know it's okay to ask for help yeah so number one is you have to ask for help um, if you feel or start to notice that you know things are a little bit out of control for you uh, you're not being yourself you know, you're short-tempered, you're impatient, you, um, you know, your relationships are struggling, work and, and personal, definitely go talk to somebody because that's really the key. Um, if you don't want to talk to anybody, then getting yourself ready to, because eventually you will if you're serious about it. But if you need to take a little bit of time, get a good book, you know, talk to some people that you know about what to read, um, you know, but essentially what I would say is you have to reach out. It's just the way that we're built. We can't, we are not our own therapists. As much as we read, that dark and negative side of our personality can say, well, that's what Bob should have done, not me. You know, Doug's wrong. I'm not. So we kind of do that even when we're reading. Um, so you go talk to somebody, and by kind of submitting even to that conversation, it kind of puts the dark and negative side of our personality aside a little bit, and we can essentially develop. We can essentially grow. We can essentially start to do better. So to answer the question, what would I tell people is, if you even think you're struggling, you probably are. Find somebody that you trust to talk to to see if they're recognizing changes in your behavior or things that you're just not being yourself. Um, research, read, watch YouTube, listen to Mike and Kayla's podcasts, and um, most certainly go see somebody. And when you go see somebody, ask around. Don't just jump in and start swimming You know, um, with somebody who says they know what they're doing. Ask around, somebody who's really, really you know, good in the area that you're looking for. Yeah. I agree with that 100% because I think that uh, too often sometimes we, you know, as, and maybe this was more so prior to the new age we're in, but you do look in the yellow pages and you kind of go like, okay, we're going to this one here. Yeah. Right? And how do you know, right? So ask around. You ask around, everybody knows somebody who knows a therapist. Trust me. It's just the world we live in right now. Um, you can look at reviews and ratings online. Um, what you're looking for is somebody who is very experienced because they will know how to support you and also to motivate you and also to uh, drive you in the direction that you need to go sometimes when you don't want to. Yeah. That's great. So in psychology, one of the biggest things that they say um, is an indicator for change is coming into that self-acceptance. And we talked um, a little bit today about that like self-awareness, but it not so we haven't touched so much on that self-acceptance. And I think the awareness and acceptance kind of go hand in hand. Like you become aware of who you are, but you also need to find some level of acceptance with who you are and your circumstances. And so in psychology, they say that's the number one indicator for change. What would you say is the number one indicator that you've seen um, through your practice for change? Well, I would say um, like to the whole self-acceptance um, kind of idea that you were just talking about there is that if you can get to a place of self-acceptance, that is truly accepting all things of yourself, good and bad. And by the way, for most of us, what we think is bad isn't really that bad. Everybody's done it. We all think it, you know, blah, blah, blah. But um, if you can get to that place, and that really is the goal, the goal is self, like truly self-acceptance, you know, truly accepting every element of yourself um, like I tell everybody there's no lie that I have uh, not discussed at least with myself or at least admitted there's nothing about me good and bad that I haven't done I've had some really really good people support me in that way 
So if I was to uh, kind of move from self-acceptance, so you're right, I mean, that's, if you have self-acceptance, change is just going to happen naturally because you're always going to start doing things that are good for others, which is also good for you. Um, but if we look at self-acceptance as uh, what would be the number one indicator of change for me would just actually be willingness. Um, that's the starting point. Like I tell everyone, it's very hard to walk up to the doors at Occutrauma because you, you've never been here before the first time. I tell the story where I used to work in a psych unit and um, I used to say like to the doctors and to the psychologists and everybody working up, I'd say, do you ever get to the front door, grab the front door and then kind of wonder who's watching in a parking lot and if they're thinking you're a patient or if you're a professional, every one of them would go, yeah, yeah, I do. And I'm like, well, what do you think it's like for the patients? You know, because you can brush it off and go, I'm the, I'm the doctor, I'm the professional, but the patients can't, they don't know what they're walking into. So that willingness is absolutely key. It's just like, no matter what's going on inside of you, go find the supports, go find the good relationships, you know, go find the good people, uh, do the work. And the work is essentially, and I'm a big fan of this, you guys know this, that's why we work the way that we work at Occutrauma, but it is physical and it is um, psychological, mental, emotional, all that kind of stuff. The physical is huge and we know that now. We've known since the beginning of time. Uh, we were talking about Buddha earlier. I mean, that's what yogis did. That's why they were doing all the, like hanging in trees upside down for three days and starving the body and all those things. It was to understand how the emotion affects our thinking and who and our perception of selves and a perception of the world that we live in. So the body is huge. And I would say work towards an iron body. How did you like that? <laughs> yeah, that somatic experiencing is critical, right? Yeah, I, you know, yeah. Well, but it, it, but it actually is. And and what I'm trying to say in my sort of half joking way is that um, the work that uh, that you guys do is a big reason why we've been talking as long as we have. I am. Um, you're so interested in the physiological, um, psychological effect and somatic effects on the body and you understand them um, at the deepest level, right? Because you've both been through, um, you know, understanding that process of how the body can, can affect us and what we need to do. And I think that just, you know, when you go through stress, trauma, PTSD, you definitely come out of it with a different perspective on how it feels to go through it. And so being able to have that empathy um, and understand that- Post-traumatic growth. Day, it's post-traumatic growth for sure and every day is is a choice and i think that that's what we don't always realize is that like it's not easy you you can easily go back into those i'm going to call them limiting patterns but we make a choice every day to choose to be different yeah easy is hedonistic by the way it never goes well if you have all your needs met you just end up getting into all sorts of trouble just what do i want when i want it and who cares about anybody else the work is what gives us a good life. It most certainly does. And I think that's really funny because that ties right into that Buddha story that you're talking about. It's like, like what was it, like 23 years of his life or something? He was given everything that he ever could have asked for, and he didn't know what work was or sickness or any of that. And then when he went out into, um, into the city and he saw sickness and death and all of those things, and he was like, no, 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 I need to do the work. And I think that that was like truly the miracle of the situation is that you know to, you can have everything in the world and never be satisfied and that satisfaction comes when we do the work that's and actually you know what i was just going to say because i talked about the work a little bit earlier one of the the third thing i will ask add to the work on the physical side 
is get moving, you know, and I don't mean necessarily just go for a walk, but I mean, start being active in your own life. You know, um, just start doing that. Whatever you're doing, if you start moving, you will start to, if you haven't been moving, you will start to feel better. If you're moving, start, uh, you've already been moving and struggling, maybe start changing the direction of your movement. You know, like start, you know, rather than working 12 hours a day, try and spend an hour, you know, or half an hour in the morning, a half hour at night, you know, on you, um, change the direction of your work and your movement. So, um, like I said, I'm a huge, huge fan of that. Well, that's, yeah, like we, we always try and say to all of our new clients, especially, you know, we're, we're going to meet you where you are to begin with because everybody, you know, they're on a different journey. So if their movement pattern right now is nothing, they're a couch potato sitting at home, yeah. you know, getting up and walking and that, you know, bringing awareness while you're walking and being aware of your breath pattern while you're doing your walking, you know, just starting to be living in the moment, right? So that's it. The, the whole idea of that fear and anxiety lives in the past or the future it, it doesn't live right here and now. So we, we kind of preach that about, you know, being very mindful of our day to day. Well, and if you yep. look at post-traumatic growth and like what Peter, what Peter Levine says, and he talks about his steps for, you know, overcoming um, trauma is one of them is pendulation, right? And pendulation going in and out of the trauma or in yeah. and out of the stress, I'm going to say, right? Yeah. And so like putting yourself in that, that work phase where maybe you are doing some physical work, whether it be a workout or you go, going for a walk. And then also being able to come back and be like, okay, I'm, I'm still okay. And that in and out kind of concept is just a way to come to, to start it, to it, deal with things. Well, it helps yeah. to regulate that stress too. It builds that resiliency because when we do workouts, we, we activate our sympathetic nervous system. Yeah. And then being able to come back out of that into that relaxed, rest, relaxed state after starts to train your body that, okay, I don't need to be stressed all the time. I can put my body through this stress, but then I can actually come back out of that. And that's, that's so important because a lot of people, again, get stuck in that sympathetic state and they don't know how to self-regulate. And then it's like, okay, well, let's actually put you through a workout. So you are stressed. And then afterwards we're going to do some breathing and you're gonna be like, holy man, now I'm relaxed. I'm ready for yeah. <laughs> and with, was it with uh, Fitbits and Apple watches, um, just talking about what you were saying there, Mike, um, call it biofeedback, but learn to regulate your sympathetic system at will, which means get your heart rate, your heart rate comes up. And then what can you do to bring it down, right? So uh, breathing techniques, um, you know, uh, mindfulness, you know, various other techniques that, again, we've known since the beginning of time. This is the thing that always gets me is, you know, we're, we're accepting of it now, more accepting of it now. But it's the same practices we've done since the beginning of time, which tells me, by the way, that they work. A lot of smart people over thousands of years have said, hey, we've tried everything else, but this is one we keep coming back to. This one works. So why not do that? And to me, it's real simple. You know, like you were saying, like um, put yourself in, pull yourself out, uh, get your heart rate up, bring your heart rate down. But start to learn how to do that psychologically and physiologically, right? Because you can do that. You know, train yourself, essentially. That's, that's one of the, yeah, breath work is one of the things that I like, I work with athletes. So a lot of what I do is teaching them, okay, we just worked hard. Our heart rate's at 170 beats a minute. We hit the bench. We need to recover right now. So we teach them breathing techniques with like slight breath holds, increased carbon dioxide and tidal CO2. Yeah. So then it actually drops their heart rate right now. So yeah. they're ready for that next shift. They, they hit that recovery state really fast. Yeah. Um, what was it? Uh... We were, we were playing a, a game here at Christmas and it was who could get their heart rate down the quickest. 
and people were doing everything. I just held my breath. Like I was just like CO2, right? It was just like, yep. all of a sudden the heart rate starts to come down. People think it goes up, but it doesn't. It'll come down because it wants to conserve oxygen. By the way, I won. I didn't tell anybody though. That's part of being selfless. I just kept it to myself. <laughs> I was like, they said, what's yours? And I said, I don't worry about it. What's your heart rate? I said, don't worry about it. So. <laughs> now they're gonna know. <laughs> yeah. Now everybody oh, yeah, knows. Point. I didn't, yeah, well, good point. They probably are gonna listen to this too. By the way, that's not true. I just made that story up to say. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, that, that kind of ties into the question that I wanted to ask you because, you know, you work with so many clients that have, you know, these crazy stressors going on in their life. So being that you're constantly in that, how do you, you know, in the position you're in, how do you do your self-care? What do you do to build your resiliency to, to be able to stay, you know, separate from these, these traumas you see and hear about? Yeah, we, we do quite a few things here. Uh, so number one is when somebody comes in, um, we tell them that we're not, we, oh, I have to be careful how I say this. So if absolutely necessary, we will look at what we call the trauma narrative. That's the story. Uh, we are not looking for details. We're not looking for gore. We're not looking for anything, you know, what others might find exciting. If you've been a first responder for any length of time, none of that's exciting to you either. So nobody pushes back. But we tell people we're interested in the effects of it, not uh, in the story of it. And we've heard so many stories, we have stories ourselves. We don't need more stories. So that's a big one, because every time you hear a story, and that's what I say about watching TV even, every time you hear a story, you're gonna create images in your head and those images are gonna be related to you in some way. In a way, it becomes a little bit of your story. It's called secondary vicarious trauma. So there's that. The other one is, is always knowing that it's not your story. You know, what you're doing here as a therapist or, you know, psychologist, occupational therapist, whatever, um, what you're doing here is you are giving to others, which is what I was talking about before. You know, you're giving a little bit of yourself to others. So always be mindful of that. Always recognize that and always keep that in its place. It is not your story. You're here to support and you're going to carry a little bit of that weight while the person goes through it, but then you're going to let it go. So we have a thing called um, not having the trauma attach. And those are just uh, a lot of the techniques you're talking about, like breathing, mindfulness. Uh, it's really about perception and how we kind of view the work that we do and, and the, the way in which we do it with people. So moving beyond that, um, we also have very, very small caseloads. Um, the reason we do that is so people can go for a walk if they need to, like our team, eh? Um, they go for long lunches and they do. They go for... Um, we kind of set it up so they can take every like Friday off if they want to, they don't have to. Um, so they have a little bit of a longer weekend. We do tons and tons of things like that because we want them to be well in themselves and we're a mental health clinic. We should probably practice what we preach like I keep talking about. So the last thing is, is really just making sure that, um, you know, that caring for yourself. I think if you do all those things that you know that um, you have the support that you need and, uh, oh, I gotta say this. Can I say one last thing? Yeah. I forgot to touch on support, the support that you need. This is true for everybody. Um, if you, the way I try to explain this to people is, if you think about, um, if you think about the worst things that can happen in life, I mean, you see them in the news, tsunamis, earthquakes, like horrible, horrible, giant disasters. And even worse than that, what men can do to other men, you know, World War II and all that kind of stuff. So you think of the worst. Anybody can get through that. Everybody can get through that, you know, providing they survive, can get through that if they have uh, enough supports and they're the right supports. No matter how bad it is, we have to have the right supports and we have to have enough of them. 
what tends to happen with PTSD and other things, like I was saying, that avoidance or kind of pushing people away, yelling at them too much, what tends to happen is they get uh, people get isolated more and more, right? They're isolated from their employer, they're isolated from their partner, they're isolated from their family at home. So you start to remove enough supports from people. And what happens is you take away all their supports, you can't get through a normal day, never mind, you know, something challenging. And support is the is a big, big, big thing here. That's why we have um, I always call I would say it's like a club fit membership, but it's uh, it's lifelong membership. Because no matter what, you know, like stepping that that pendulum swing you're talking about is stepping in and out of the work, the job, the things. Um, they know that people know that in the back of their mind. I tell them that as long as I'm here, or as long as Occutrom is here, that's the lifetime membership. I can't promise anything beyond that. But as long as we have those two things, then um, you know they have. They know that they have at least one um, trained support in their life. So going back to that self-care thing, and I'll stop and I'll shut up after this. Going back to that self-care thing is it's having the right supports in your life and taking good care of them. Not that they take good care of you, but you take good care of them. Because then they'll stick around. Yeah. And I think support is so critical. Like I, creating that community and that community of like-minded individuals that are there to support you on this journey and knowing that, you know, if you need, you know, to make a phone call or whatever, you just need somebody to say, I'm here for you, that you can reach out. And that is something that we often preach to our clients is that, you know, we're here for you. Whether you're, <clears throat> like, just like you said, whether you're a current client or not, reach out because we yeah. want to support you. We want to see you achieve your very best. We, we have groups built with every client that we've ever had. So everybody's able to interact with each other. We, we wanted to build a community of like-minded individuals that are all on this journey. Whether you're paying customers of ours or not, it doesn't matter. You you are part of our community yeah. now. So we, we are continually building, right? We, we want to make sure that we are able to supply that positive, uplifting environment for, for everybody. Absolutely. And that's how you do it. That's how you do it. You just start including like-minded people whenever you meet them as much as you can. And inclusion, I think, is always the key. Never exclusion. If they're not like-minded, let them hang out enough and they'll, then, they'll, then they'll start to come around. If you're doing they the become like-minded. Exactly. That's, <laughs> that's part of it. Eventually show yeah. Them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think that that is like a great wrap up point for this episode. We've gotten so much information today with post-traumatic growth and stress and trauma recovery and all of that. I think this has just been absolutely amazing. Yeah, I say it every time we get to talk to you, Sean. It's, you know, it's always, it's always a, a, an honor to talk to you. It's, it's great. Well, I appreciate it. It's always like talking with a couple of friends and we are like-minded in that way. So I, I really always enjoy everything you guys do and, um, you know, always happy to chat. You know that I won't shut up. So <laughs> that's good. You 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 go great with Kayla. <laughs> yeah, there we go. There we go. Uh, Thank okay. you so much for coming on today's episode. We have really truly enjoyed this. Yeah, and for everybody listening, uh, we will have the information for Sean. How to you know if you want to reach out to Sean yourself, we will have his information in the show notes today. Um, so make sure to check that out. It was truly a pleasure having Sean join us on today's episode. I hope you all learned something from our conversation together. If you are military or first responder looking for more information on the services Sean and his team have, check out his Occutrauma website at occutrauma.ca. If you are a civilian looking for services that Sean and his team have available, 
check out HealthWorks website at hlthworx.ca. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast here today. If you like it, please share it with a friend, a family member, a loved one. Drop us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Have an amazing rest of your day.